to Maghrebian Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of Art and Letters in the Maghreb Lecture Series and was recorded on the 26th of October 2020 at the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, CEMA. In this episode, we welcome Sidi Mohamed Lakhtarbarka, Professor of Comparative Literature at the Department of English, Faculty of Foreign Languages, Mohamed Ben Hamad University, Oran 2, presenting a podcast entitled Oran, The Plague and COVID-19. Oran, la peste, the plague, and COVID-19. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This expose purposes to try and disentangle the threads of reality and fiction. When woven in an artistic tapestry, transform a literary monument to the plague by Camus into a shrine of history. I have decided to study Camus' La Peste, the plague, in its original version, in French. Quotations in French, whether from the novel or criticism, will be translated into English. This presentation will proceed in five parts. First of all, the referential part, a literary device. Second, the chronotopy, the second literary device. Third, Camus Oran as a character. Fourth, the plague as a character. Five, Camus, a stake between two visions of history. There seems to be a revival of Camus La Peste, the plague, through articles and debate broadcasts recently sparked off by the COVID-19 pandemic that flared up through the world. Admittedly, the cultural reference of the disease, by way of association, recalled Camus' novel, and naturally, the setting, Oran, where the plot is staged. The thematic resurrection of this masterpiece occurs through the connect junction of three nodal components of the novel. A geographical spot, Oran, combined with a collective angst, the plague, and an allegorical referent, the German occupation of France during the Second World War. For the first time in the 21st century, a pandemic, COVID-19, strikes mankind. Its unknown and invisible aspects generate behavioral manifestations shaping in social phenomena. It recalls paranoia collective crisis throwing crowds into panics when through the Middle Ages up to late 19th century, recurrently, the plague and typhus swept through Europe, taking a large death toll. Two relevant literary devices, the referential pact and the chronotopy, will allow us another reading of the novel, not from the well-known and institutionalized north-south cultural approach from the French angle, but from a South-North Algerian perspective, yet in the same language. We therefore will not go through the usual gallery of portraits of the human characters described in the novel. 
and will follow Taru's statement in the novel when he says, I quote, there are three categories of people, the scourge, the victims, and peace. We will consider Oran representing the victims, the scourge, in this case, COVID-19, representing the plague, and Camus' allegory of a desperate quest for peace between Algerians and French as the dilemma he embodies. The referential pact, the first literary device coined by Philippe Lejeune's work in Le Pacte Autobiographique. Tous les textes référentiels comportent donc ce que j'appellerai un pacte référentiel, implicite ou explicite, dans lequel sont inclus une définition du champ du réel visé et un énoncé des modalités et du degré de ressemblance auquel le texte prétend. Translation, all referential texts imply what I would call a referential pact, whether implicitly or explicitly, in which is included a definition of the field of the real aimed at and a description of the modalities and the degree of verisimilitude the text pretends to. Such a pact convinced that any reading of text the transmission of the message from an author, would-be narrator, to the reader, tacitly takes place within the frame of a contract, implicitly informing the reader about whether the text about to be read refers to real events or imaginary facts. Therefore, we trust the author and accept either the truth or fallacy of the content, as it has been agreed upon by the two interlocutors, partners of the reading deal. Such an implicit agreement defines the generic function of the text, often being the product of a literary tradition, as in Europe, on the one hand. On the other, it identifies, through different rhetorical forms, the first-person singular narrator with the author, in order to specify the autobiographical characteristic of the narrative. Camus' epigraph of the novel, which he translated into French, quote, Il est aussi raisonnable de représenter une espèce d'emprisonnement par une autre que de représenter n'importe quelle chose qui existe réellement par quelque chose qui n'existe pas. Quotes Daniel Defoe, it is as reasonable to represent one kind of imprisonment by another as it is to represent anything that really exists by that which exists not. We may notice some similarities between Defoe's Robinson Crusoe and La Peste, which illustrate how the referential pact with the reader was acted in such a way that it induced a stronger impression of realism, though the two novels are products of imagination. Here are four elements to illustrate this proposition. First of all, the editor's preface precedes Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. He states that, I quote, the editor believes in the thing to be a just history of fact, neither is there any appearance of fiction in it. The same in Capus La Peste, a three-page text states, without title defining its function in the blurb, and set before his narrative, tells, Mais après tout, 
Un chroniqueur ne peut tenir compte de ces contradictions. Sa tâche est seulement de dire « ceci est arrivé ». Lorsqu'il sait que ceci est arrivé, en effet, arrivé, c'est ce qui l'autorise à faire œuvre d'historien. Bien entendu, un historien, même s'il est amateur, a toujours des documents. Le narrateur de cette histoire a donc les siens, son témoignage d'abord, celui des autres, puisque par son rôle, il fut amené à recueillir les confidences de tous les personnages de cette chronique et, en dernier lieu, les textes qui finirent par tomber entre ses mains. I translate, but after all, a chronicler cannot take into account these contradictions. This is what allows him to act as a historian. Of course, a historian, even if not professional, has documents. The narrator of this story, therefore, has his as a witness, first of all, then other witnesses. Because of his role, he was bound to collect the statements of all the characters of this chronicle, and eventually the text that happened to be at hand. So we see that, indeed, the two of them, the preface and the foreword, belong to the blurb, i.e., they are not within the narrative itself, what Philippe Lejeune calls lore text. These two devices, in the form of a warning to the reader, could be read as a way to consider them outside their generic status, i.e., as fiction. The presentation of the novel, somehow, in structure, reads like Robinson Crusoe's preface, an autobiographical pact with the reader, a literary device in which the facts of fiction are presented as real events experienced by genuine individuals and not characters. The second element. Throughout the narration, Robinson Crusoe, as well as Dr. Rieux, the two narrators, every now and again, coming out of the digesis, the time of the fiction of the story, address the reader directly, just like in a friendly conversation, to confirm that what he, the reader, is reading is not imagined, not invented, but the truth of facts, backed by archives and reported by eyewitness narrators, clearly chroniclers acting as historians. These repeated intrusions within the narratives creates a triangular relationship involving three interlocutors, the reader, then the narrator, who sometimes goes out of the fiction time and speaks as the author, as explained by Philippe Lejeune, I quote, la personne actuelle qui produit la narration, le sujet de l'énoncé, est double en ce sens qu'il est inséparable du sujet de l'énonciation. I translate, the actual person who produces the narrative, the subject of the theme, is dual in the sense that it cannot be separated from the subject of the enunciation. The narrator interferes in and out of the theme, being at once the character of the plot, intradigetic narrator, and the author, extradigetic narrator. The frequent shifts between fiction and reality contribute to the predominant impression of truth of the story recounted. The third element, the two novels unwind in a chronological order, the board journal of a boat, 
listing the days of adventures through the oceans of a man who introduces himself right at the outset of his long journey as Robinson Crusoe. As for Dr. Ryu, he keeps a diary through epidemics and will reveal his identity only by the end of the novel when the city opens to the external world. A first-person singular narrator's chronicle reports as a historical account what happened respectively in these two contexts. The fourth element, the two of them stage human beings in a confined space. Crusoe's island, surrounded with oceans, sets geographical and natural limits to his world. Camus' Oran, circled by administrative boundaries, provides a claustrophobic environment. It aimed to illustrate how discursive rhetorical forms could expand the limits of the perception we have of our environment, to the point that an illusion may impinge on our vision of the real world. The parallel between these two novels stops here. Now we go back to Camus' novel. The chronotopy, the second literary device, the chronotopy, coined by Michael Bartin, which he defines, I quote, the connectedness of temporal and spatial relationships that are artistically expressed in literature. The chronotopy in literature has an intrinsic generic significance. It can even be said that it is precisely the chronotopy that defines genre and generic distinctions, for in literature, the primary category in the chronotopy is time. For Camus, Oran, as much as the plague, are characters, and as such, literary devices which feature the nature of mankind. When faced with the unknown, the vacuum of a tomorrow in a community facing an improbable future. More than place and time, this technique underlines the close intertextual aspect of the allegory of isolation throughout the centuries of literary traditions in the world. Confinement has always constituted a dreadful act of desocialization that denies the founding psychological needs of affection and love of any human being. Camus Oran as a character, the nearest and the most contemporary recounting of the threat of a communal fate worldwide known and celebrated through its author is La Peste, the plague by Camus, and supposedly happening in Oran. The city has become systematically collocated with the scourge, and its imaginary impact produced more realism than its artistically meant effect. If the spotted stage is still there and the pandemics in the form of an invisible threat is back again, the allegorical referent does not apply any longer to the supposed characters. Oran inhabitants today likely to perform the same dramatic plot on this particular setting 
as prophesied by the very last lines of the novel, I quote, Le jour viendrait où pour le malheur et l'enseignement des hommes, la peste réveillerait ses rats et les enverrait mourir dans une cité heureuse. The day will come when for the misfortune and the teaching of men, the plague will wake up her rats and will send them to die in a happy city. The choice of Camus or Rand for the context of the novel is clearly acknowledged by the institutional critics. I quote, Parce que la ville aussi semblait d'une certaine façon la moins algérienne des cités d'Algérie, la plus européenne, donc la plus propre dans sa banalité, au mythe de portée universelle. Because the town seemed in a way the least Algerian of the cities of Algeria, the most European, therefore the most adapted in its banality to the depth of this universal myth. The corollary of this statement implies that La Peste is an essentially literary and philosophical reflection, thematically deported outside its inherent and organic context, that of France during the Second World War. A decaying city mirrors a decaying community. Let me quote a few qualifiers Camus refers to in order to describe Oran. I quote, The city has pitched her stony roots. Silence came back, and with it the hazy rumor of the suffering city. This city which spread at his foot. The closed world she formed and the terrible wailings she suffocated in the night. The description of the setting matches more the theme of the novel, the absurd of life during the Second World War in German-occupied France. Most colors are qualified with dearth, filth, shabbiness, squalidness. Colors are recurrently collocated with degrading qualifiers. Let me quote a few examples. A dirty yellow, a gray water, a dusty green, the sun switched off all colors and made all joys run away. Dirty pavement, exhausted spring, a night of betrayal, a night of wailing, bizarre abundant sunbeams in empty streets. The sun chased our citizens at all corners of the streets, and if they stopped, he struck them. Such a dreary portrait of the city is accentuated by the recurrent use of empeste, which in colloquial French means terribly bad-smelling, and includes pest. This word is quite common in daily language. Yet, in this context, it performs a dual function. It means smelling of decay, yet at the same time, it is associated with the plague itself. The description of the city in the novel does not correspond to the real one. I quote, Comment imaginer, par exemple, une ville sans pigeons, sans arbres et sans jardins? où l'on ne rencontre ni battement d'ailes, ni froissement de feuilles, un lieu neutre pour tout dire. How to imagine, for instance, a city without pigeons, 
without trees and without gardens, where you neither meet the fluttering of wings nor the crumpling of leaves, a neutral place, so to say. In Algeria, its indigenous inhabitants have always been known for being outspoken and lively, but in Camus La Peste they are totally absent. Yes, indeed, Camus Oran is a fictitious artifact that connotes two allegorical references. The first one, worldly acknowledged, embodied by a French community microcosm living in the city, represents the larger macrocosm affecting the European continent through the Second World War. The second one means by preterition the strongly signifying absence of the indigenous community in the same city, the so-called Arabs. Besides its current pejorative connotation, this word was at the time used as an ethnic identifier to distinguish Algerians from the colonizers. Whether readers in the north of the Mediterranean Sea or in the south, one of these two perceptions will necessarily determine their reception of the text. Oran at the time of COVID-19. The real Oran is almost the opposite. Most boulevards and avenues are bordered with two lines of century-old shadowy trees. It is known to the world through its waterfront, boulevard, front-de-mer, with huge palm trees, a site that provides the iconic picture of the city postcards. Today, the setting of the novel is nothing but a little neighborhood looking upon the harbor. Around topography has enormously changed. The city has stretched eastward for about 20 kilometers, whereas colonial Oran was about three kilometers width. Most of its century-old buildings, threatening to crumble down, have been destroyed to build other urban structures, highways, schools, public offices, etc. Three universities and five higher education schools make of it a cosmopolitan urban center, to name but these two economic, social and cultural indicators. Oran as a city remains no more than a geographical landmark on a map that has two references, one literary in Camus' fiction and another one contemporary, genuinely Algerian. We may say these two pictures of the city are totally opposed, even more antagonized. It just happens that the literary reference is world widely known. As for the second people living in Oran, today do not feel concerned by such a dreary vision. Had they read the novel, as it matches neither what they could daily see nor how they feel about it. So for most readers who know and or live in Oran, and do not have in mind this literary device warning to the reader, the story being true facts, they would certainly not understand such a caricature 
of their city. And it may sound like an indictment of the place. As for Algerians, it is exactly known for the opposite. Full of light, exuberant, joyful, lively, and so convivial. The plague as a character. About three pages are entirely devoted to the plague, personified, I quote, we had the impression that the disease got tired, or maybe she decided to leave after having reached its objectives. An innocent murderer, the plague's prisoners, the plague seemed to stop her efforts a while to take her breath back. A faceless, pernicious and sneaky danger, it embodies rampant death the moment in one's life when the need for the other becomes useless, human beings become mere individuals submitted to fatality. In this sense, the scourge destroys the meaning of human compassion and acts as an instrument of dislocation of the community. It is portrayed just like a tyrant who enjoys making people suffer. I quote, beings tied by intelligence, heart and flesh, were reduced to look for the signs of this former communion in the capital letters of ten words in newspapers. That is why Camus says that these human beings are not, I quote, the heroes of a tragedy, but prototypes of an average humanity. The plague works as a desocializing phenomenon. The allegorical referent concerns a typically and historically European problematic. Oran inhabitants today feel predominantly Arab or Amazigh and Muslim. It excludes the possibility of a cultural conception of the absurd, since such a philosophical feature would require a certain amount of agnosticism as a spiritual cultural prerequisite for the social context. Far from being a serious source of terror, the pandemic's statistics daily recorded so far by the end of September 2020 and after six months of confinement give a death toll of less than 2,000 out of a 44 million population. These figures can in no way be a source of collective angst. For them, or run inhabitants, it sounds mostly like a media obsession and seems to respond to national and international political management. Considering its real impact on the Algerian society now, the general attitude towards the COVID-19 sounds more like a hysteria for the layman. It seems as if the healthcare institutions have difficulties to convince people that this is a serious threat to their life. Camus, a stake between two visions of history. Since Oran and the plague do not any longer relate to our context, there remains the author as a bone of contention between two visions of history. What used to be one country, France, with an Algerian department, a regional division unit, 
has become now two countries, France in the north of the Mediterranean Sea and an independent country, Algeria, in the south of the same sea. The chronotopy, i.e. the connectedness of time and space, has definitely changed. In Camus' The Plague, time and space, the Algerian time and space conception was totally absent. Any attempt to juxtapose occupied France allegorical referent to a historically non-existing Algerian character would induce a genuine anachronism. For Algerians, Camus' absurd posture may correspond to one of his characters trying to depict emptiness, I quote, but he was just the historian of what has no history. In the plague, the inhabitants of Iran had no history. Yes, indeed, Camus stands as a particular author in our regional context. He'll live a life torn by different ideological trends due to the terrible conflict that will bring Algeria to its independence in 1962, after seven years of war, to put an end to 132 years of dreadful colonization. Becoming the literature Nobel Prize winner provided him with a world fame that made of him the exclusive representative of a nation, as he is seen in France through the French language and the property of their cultural patrimony. One would wonder whether such a polemical issue would have happened had he voiced the choice of his mother over justice before that worldly advertised event of the Stockholm ceremony. The world fame will make of him a stake to the partners of antagonistic ideals, the Algerian people who wanted to become free from the colonial yoke and expected him to voice the terrible oppression they were subjected to by a colonial state that did not want to abandon one part of its colony with its European-French minority, since it was one of the most ancient colonization by settlement on the African continent. Both sides of the Mediterranean Sea acknowledge him as a universal, iconic representation. The former, the French, claims him as a legitimate heir to a literary and philosophical tradition. And the latter, the Algerians, stigmatized him since he missed a unique opportunity to stick to his early commitments to the Algerian wretched of the earth as a journalist and stand for the philosophical ideas and human values, the very ones he was granted the Nobel Prize for. Confusion may stem out of a historically shared past, fostering bitterness, grudge, and unfortunately, sealed and unrecognized memories of which he is the stake of very controversial misunderstandings. Camus certainly is a national claim for France and for mankind as well. His works, written in French, 
represent the worldwide cultural values that language carries. For Algerians, he remains a rather controversial intellectual figure, but certainly not a national claim. Algeria has two national and official languages, Arabic and Tamazight, and a national literary production in these two languages. There was no necessity for him to summon Arabs in his fiction, as the allegorical reference was in France, and concerned the French people under the iron clamps of Nazi system, while at the same time, the Algerian people was under the iron clamps of the French colonial ruling. For Algerians, he was in a weird, not to say ironical position as the herald of justice as an institution of oppression. By the end of the fourth section, Taru confesses his life story. He is the son of a lawyer, a public prosecutor. He admired his father till the day the latter invited him to attend a trial at the tribunal. There he saw his father, between quotations, murder a victim. I quote, I kept of that day only one picture, that of the guilty man. Transformed by his red gown, the father, neither kind nor affectionate, his mouth crowded with immense phrases which came out like snakes. I understood he was asking for his head, his head must fall down, he said. For Taru, any condemnation, be it legal, is a murder, and makes of justice, just like his father, a murderer. That very day, he ran away from home and started a hectic life. He goes on, I quote, I have no taste for heroes and saints. I just want to be a man. Camus' portrayal of justice as a criminal institution whether in this novel or in L'Etranger, when seen in this perspective, seems to be coherent with his life commitment, but with his unfortunate famous Stockholm statement, he somehow destroyed the ideals he fostered in the Algerians' hopes. As a hypothesis, which obviously remains open to debate, we suggest a key to apprehend and then comprehend the profound complexity of the author. His family and individual history superpose about three layers of identity in him. The first one, a universal one that is to be found in his fiction and philosophical essays. The second one, a national one, French, as the representative epitome of the French language in the world. And last, the third one, a biological being rooted in his childhood, the natural link of the family history in symbiosis with the land. Quote, a dazzling sun, a profoundly blue sea, and an enthralling light and a dizzy air, endlessly recurring metaphors linking him organically to his native country. We propose that any attempt to ignore 
either of these three dimensions in order to understand his personality and to some extent his work would be partial and may be biased. It would be hazardous to transpose Camus' chronotopy, i.e. the historical space and time, of his life into our contemporary context, since this would reduce his Mediterranean dimension to national boundaries as they have been definitely drawn two years after his death in 1962 with the independence of a country in which today he probably would have become a foreigner. To claim that he denied his Algerianity, Algerian dimension, so to speak, for the French oppressor, and see it as a betrayal of his ideals of justice, would certainly disregard his daily commitment to the Algerian people as a journalist in his strictly Algerian period of life. Algerians today share with him this organic being that marks generations' long-lived experiences in this part of the world. Our Algerian history, unreal like an endless litany of cultural contact and colonial subjugations going back to the first Phoenicians who landed on our coasts. Algeria is at the crossroad of continents, civilizations, and consequently ideologies. Therefore, we have to come to the awareness that we are the end product of so many cultural encounters resulting from the geographical, focal, cultural point of encounter this country is and has always been. Anyone whose ancestors shared a span of local history may well legitimately claim a part of this heritage as Algerian with no exclusivity. Today, Camus has become more of a trademark that two different cultural nationalisms dispute, whereas he has always advocated his devotion to the whole of mankind. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Macrobin Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themagrippodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Magrobin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the SEMA newsletter at www.sema-northafrica.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.